In his words, Iran crossed a red line with Wednesday's missile attack on Israeli forces in the Golan Heights. Israel warns that any further aggression will be met with overwhelming force. Christian minority in the Jiangxi province of southeast China have now advised to replace the image of Jesus Christ with that of President Xi Jinping. This is Unity State, where a hundred thousand people are now feeling the effects of famine. Historic transition has set off deadly protests. The U.S. Embassy in Israel has officially moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem on the 70th anniversary of Israel's founding. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you on this beautiful day. We are in the series of Revelation. That's why these apocalyptic bumpers keep showing up before the messages, because you watch the news, you read the news, you talk to people, and you can't help but wonder, you know, how long is this world going to last? And uh, people have been wondering that for a really long time. So we've been in the book of Revelation trying to discover what the future looks like. And uh, one of the things that I've done on purpose as we've gone through Revelation is I've avoided timelines, chronology. I've avoided trying to get into some of the issues of interpreting signs and symbols, things like that. And tried to keep the focus really on the major themes throughout Revelation. So for instance, we talked about the fact that Jesus declares himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And what does that mean for us? That he's the beginning of our life, the, the end of the purpose of our lives. Where do we fit in? And we talked about the fact we're the means that he uses for his purpose. We went to Revelation chapter 4 and 5. We talked about the worship of God. All creation bows before him. So what does that mean? How do we worship God? We talked about judgment and tried to understand the wrath of God and what that all means. We then looked behind the scenes and saw the beginning of evil, but learned that evil will end someday. We saw that Christ is triumphant. He is triumphant over evil on the cross. And we said that his victory will culminate someday when he returns. And then we talked about our role. We talked about what it means to be persecuted for our faith or to suffer for our faith. Not something we know a lot about yet in our country, but people around the world certainly understand and how God calls us to remain faithful and to trust him. And when we're tempted to compromise, which I think that we are very familiar with in our culture, when we're tempted to compromise in order to be accepted by the culture, whether it's our morals or whether it's other kinds of beliefs, we need to stand true and anchored on the truth of God's word. This weekend, I want to ask you a very important question. The question is simply this. What is the city of your residence? Or which city are you resident? So are you like literally asking us to tell you what cities we live in in the Twin Cities, the Minneapolis area? No, that's not exactly what I mean. What I mean is there's really only two cities that you can choose to have your residence in. And I wanna know which one of those you have chosen. So what two cities are you talking about? I'm talking about the most dangerous city in the world. And I'm also talking about the most incredible, can't even describe city that we can be residents in. So I need to know more about that. 
So turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 14. And let's explore the most dangerous city in the world, the most dangerous city in the world. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 8. While you're doing that, I want to welcome those of you joining us online, especially all of our global partners. Thank God for your ministry. So here it is, verse 8. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Now, turn over to chapter 16 and look at verse 19. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Come down to chapter 17, verse 5. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the great, the mother of prostitutes, and of the abominations of the earth. Now look at chapter 18, verse 2. With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then look at chapter 18, verse 10. Terrified at her torment, they still they will stand afar and cry, Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour your doom has come. And then over in verse 21, then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. So that's the city, the most dangerous city in the world. It's the city of Babylon. And to the first century believers, if you'd ask them, where is that city? What is that city? They would have said, well, that's talking about Rome. And they would have been right. Rome had existed for almost a millennia. It was viewed as an invincible city, the city of all cities. From Rome came culture, it produced culture. It was the seat of power, the seat of commerce. It was also a religious center as well. And nobody thought it would ever crumble until the Goths came in and sacked Rome eventually. But as Lydia Sheldon says, she comments on the spirit of Babylon, she says it's more than just Rome. That Babylon is a mindset. We can speak of the spirit of Babylon. So what is that then? What is the mindset of Babylon? What is the spirit of Babylon? Well, it's present with us today, I can tell you that much. And all of us, all of us live and move in the currents of the spirit to the mindset of Babylon. And that's what makes it so dangerous. And to understand the modern spirit of Babylon, we've got to go way back to the old, Old Testament, Genesis chapter 11. So turn there with me, if you will. Um, first book of the Bible now. Genesis chapter 11, not too long after the flood, Noah's day, people still spoke one language and they were moving across the plain of Shinar, what we think of today as modern day Babylon, somewhere in that, or modern day Iraq, somewhere in that area. And here's what it says in chapter 11, verse 1. 
Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Now, here it comes. Here is the spirit of Babylon. So that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. That's the spirit of Babylon I'm talking about. Summed up in that one simple phrase, let us make a name for ourselves. And indeed, you see that today. All of us face that temptation to make a name for ourselves, to make something of ourselves, to accomplish something, to succeed at something and say, look what I've done, look what I've, look what I've been able to accomplish. That's what's dangerous. Augustine wrote um, a book called The City of God. And in that book, he talks about the city of men, which is the equivalent of the spirit of Babylon. And he characterizes the city of men, which is the city, which is the city of Babylon or the spirit of Babylon, in three different ways. He says, first of all, the city of men, or the spirit of Babylon, is very self-centered. It's all about the love of self, the promotion of self. Secondly, the city of man glorifies the achievements of men. Look at what we've achieved. Look at our skyscrapers. Look at our commerce. Look at our industry. Look at our technology. Look at our arts. Look at our abilities. Aren't we something? Look what we have been able to do. And the citizens of the city of Babylon or the city of men, they derive their own sense of worth, their own sense of power, their own sense of being from what their leaders are able to accomplish. Now, give me a, I'll give you an example of what I mean. Think about sports for a moment. Maybe you're a, a Twins fan or a, a Vikings fan or a Timberwolves fan or some other fan. I don't, I don't know, all right? But let's say you're a follower of sports. When your team is in the World Series or the Super Bowl or the Stanley Cup Finals or today, you know, in the World Cup Finals and your team wins, how do you feel? You feel like a winner and you didn't spend one moment on the field. But you do, if vicariously, you're, it's like you were in the game, and when your team wins, you win. That's the same idea here with the spirit of Babylon, that, that somehow we vicariously through to the leaders of the spirit of Babylon, through, through these world leaders and their greatness, we feel great. Let's get an even clearer picture of this. Let's, do, let's look at a biblical and historical example, the epitome of Babylon. Turn over to the prophet Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. Now, Daniel served uh, several kings. The greatest of them was, was Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was called Babylon, literal Babylon. And it was the greatest kingdom on earth at that time. He was the most powerful ruler, and he had some dreams. And Daniel, God's prophet, had interpreted at least one dream earlier on in, in the book of Daniel. And he's called on by Nebuchadnezzar to interpret another dream in chapter 4. Daniel doesn't want to tell him what it means because you get the sense that Daniel has taken a liking to Nebuchadnezzar, that he's been, you know, working on the old king, trying to get him, you know, squared away. Daniel says, I really hate to tell you what this dream means because it's bad news for you. Because your arrogance, your pride, God's going to judge you. And perhaps 
okay, if you get on your knees and repent and tell him you're sorry, he'll stay his hand of judgment. But Nebuchadnezzar does not listen. And so when you come to chapter 4 and verse 29, 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Do you hear the spirit of Babylon? In other words, isn't this the work of my hands? Haven't I really made a name for myself? Look at this magnificent palace. Look at this beautiful, sprawling city filled with the wonders of the world. Haven't I really done something? You can imagine the Babylonian citizens would have felt great about their city as well and great about their king and powerful and wealthy and we've arrived. And then God speaks. Look what God says in verse 32. You'll be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you and to acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and give them to anyone he wishes. Here what God says, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to humble you. Because you don't understand that your ability is given by me, that all authority belongs to me, and you wouldn't have anything if I didn't allow you to have it, and I'm using you to judge my people who have been rebellious against me, but I am the ultimate authority. And he humbles him. Now, Nebuchadnezzar and these periodic cities of Babylon that we see throughout history, these epicenters of, of evil and pride and human arrogance, are all precursors, they're all pictures of what is yet to come. And I believe the Bible's clear, we talked about it last weekend, so you can go online and watch it if you want. Someday there will emerge on earth, I believe, a literal personality. He won't be called this, but he is the Antichrist. And he will create a spirit, because remember the dragon, Satan's behind it all, all right? We'll create a true spirit of Babylon, I guess I should say a false spirit of Babylon, that will permeate the world. It will be a global Babylon, a global antichrist movement that will shake its fist in the face of God, declaring that man has arrived, that, that we don't need God, that we can handle the world. Look how unified we are. All we have to do is get rid of those so-called followers of God, deny God's existence, deny that God's even there, and we will finally have triumph. And finally, humanity will rule this world. And that's when God says he's going to take his bowls of judgment and just dump those bowls of judgment out. One last time on humanity for humanity's arrogance. Now, I don't know about you, but I really don't want to be a citizen of a city that's got that coming to it, do you? I don't really want to participate in the spirit of Babylon. So the question becomes, what's there for me? What's there for you? What, what city should we put our residency in? And I'm so glad you asked that question because that takes us back to the book of Revelation. So turn over to Revelation chapter 3 is where we'll start and verse 12. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 3, verse 12. Here's what it said. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. There it is. The opposite of Babylon. The new Jerusalem. 
which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, it doesn't mean literally tattooed on us. What it means is blessed. What it means is to claim. What it means is loyalty. Consecration, have the name written on us, so to speak. We are his and he is ours. Now, I want you to skip ahead to chapter 21, toward the end of Revelation. And by the way, last summer we did a whole series on heaven and talked about New Jerusalem. You can go online and listen to it. But look at chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there's no longer any sea. I saw the holy sea, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Are you excited? Think about that. I am. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. Imagine that. God wants to literally dwell with us. That's what he did in the garden in the very beginning. You know that? Man rebelled and was expelled from the garden, but God's looking forward to once again dwelling with us, walking with us in the cool of the day, so to speak. It says, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning, crying or pain for the old order of things that passed away. Now, what's the old order of things? That's man's way. That's the city of man. That's the spirit of Babylon. It'll all be done away. There'll be a new order of things as led by God himself. Come down to verse 9 of chapter 21. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clear, excuse me, as crystal. Come down to chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They'll see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There'll be no more night. They will not need the lamp of, they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, how much of it's literal, how much of it's symbolic, I don't know. But what I do know this, no matter what's literal, no matter what's symbolic, it's greater than human imagination or words can describe. There is going to be a literal heaven, a literal new earth, and a literal new Jerusalem. And I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but we're all going to be city dwellers someday. Scripture makes it pretty clear. God loves the city. Unfortunately, when the spirit of Babylon takes over the city, it can produce a lot of evil, but a lot of good will come, and someday the ultimate city of God. And I don't know about you, but I'm longing for that city. How about you? This world is not my home. I don't want this world to be my home. It's my temporary stay. There's a guy who lived a long time ago who could relate to that. His name's Abraham. So if you want to turn back just a few pages to the book of Hebrews, 
chapter 11, we hear about, we hear about Abraham's mindset. And I love his mindset. I love his attitude. It's, it's the attitude I want to have and I want to live by. And I hope you will as well. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Feels like you and me sometimes, doesn't it? It's like we know we don't belong here. We're not quite sure where we're going, but we're kind of, we're kind of camping in this world, waiting for our, our eternal residency. Verse 9, by faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Here's what I love, verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And I don't think that's talking about old Jerusalem. Abraham had this instinct, had this faith to believe that, that God was going to create something pretty spectacular, supernatural, and he was looking forward to that, that city whose foundation is built by the architect God, and I'm looking forward to it as well. How about you? So what are the characteristics of the city of God? Well, all you got to do is look at those passages we just read, and you'll find some of them. Whereas the city of men is built on selfishness and love of self, the city of God's built on the love of God, the love of God for you and for me. Whereas men try to build a name for themselves, God has built a name for himself. Where we take glory for ourselves in the city of God, the New Jerusalem, all the glory is given to God. Where human cities are ruled by human beings, God's city will be ruled by his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And imagine this, he'll be free of death and suffering and pain and sorrow forever. And there's a central park in the new city. It was mentioned there in chapter 22. I think the Garden of Eden literally will exist within the new city of Jerusalem. Yet to be seen, but as I read chapter 22 carefully and look at what other scholars and writers say, it's very possible that the Garden of Eden is being kept by God for that moment, for that place. What a place it will be. So here's the question one more time. Which city are you resident in? The city of God or the city of men? Are you part of the spirit of Babylon or are you living in the spirit of God? It's a really important question to answer. Which city am I a part of? Now, as I was thinking about that, I was saying, Lord, give me some, please give me some clarity. Literally was praying that and suddenly my mind within minutes was taken to an old story that we're all familiar with, one of the greatest parables that Jesus ever told about the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15, read it later on, or reread it. Luke chapter 15, you have this young man who comes to his father and he says, Father, give me my inheritance. It was the same as though he said to his dad, I wish you were dead. I want my money. And the father amazingly gave his son the inheritance. It says that the son went off into a far country, probably to a city, and there he tried to make a name for himself. Now, there are three ways you can make a name for yourself. One is you can do it through hedonism. That is, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And that's what he did. He spent all his money on, on riotous, not righteous, but riotous, that is out loud, you know, over-the-top kind of living, party animal, 
or you can try to make your living in a very calculated way. And what I mean by that is, you know, you can save your pennies, invest them wisely, be successful materially speaking, achieve a lot, have your peers envy you or, or emulate you. That's another way. Well, there's a third way I'll talk about in just a moment. But he did it. He did it in the way of eat, drink, and be merry. I'm going to have a good time. And as long as he had money, he had friends. He had success. He had a name. He had popularity. I want to stop there for just a moment to remind all of us, and myself included, that we too have been given an inheritance. Even if you're not a follower of Christ, you've been given an inheritance by God. You have gifts, you have talents, you have abilities, you have relationships, you have power, you have influence. It may be small, it may be great, but you've got it. Everybody here's got it, I've got it, you've got it. And the question is, am I maximizing it for God or am I maximizing it for myself? Am I using it to build his kingdom or am I using it to build my kingdom or is it brick and mortar that I'm adding to the spirit of Babylon, the kingdom of men? And you got to really think about that question because our default nature, all right, it's just our, our very sinful nature is to build a kingdom for ourselves. So it's not just something I say, no, 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 I'm, I'm building for the kingdom of God. You'll wake up tomorrow and be tempted to build for the kingdom of self. It's like every day I got to work on this. I got to think about this. Who am I living for? Living for me? Living for the world? Living for others? Or am I living for the Lord? Am I glorifying me or am I glorifying God with my resources, my gifts, my talents, my abilities? Is it about building my ministry, my name, my team, my company, my reputation? Or is it about God? Ah, It takes a little bit of thinking on that one, doesn't it? At least it does for me. Well, the young man spends everything he has and he runs out of money. And when he runs out of money, he runs out of friends. And a famine hits the land. He hits bottom big time. He ends up feeding the swine, pea pods, and he's almost tempted to eat the same food he's given to the pigs, which is really low because it's a, it's a Jewish story. So this is a Jewish young man, which, I mean, I mean, how bad can it get, right? He decides to himself, I'm going to go home. But I'm going to strike a bargain with my dad. I'm going to tell him I'm not worthy to be your son anymore. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against God. Just make me a, you know, a ranch hand. I'll live in the bunkhouse and try to earn some of the money back. So he heads, he heads home, and his father sees him coming a long ways off. And the father goes running to him, arms open wide, and swallows his son with forgiveness and love and grace and mercy which extracts from his son then repentance. It's really important that we get that clear in our minds because some of us, I think, have grown up, I did at least, intentionally or unintentionally with this idea that I repent in order to receive forgiveness and grace. That is not the way it works. It is God's grace and forgiveness that causes me to repent. That's the right way to look at it. I can't earn God's forgiveness by saying I'm sorry. That puts control in my hands. I'm not in control. God's in control. God comes to me in the cross through his grace, through his mercy, forgiveness. And when I see the love of God, that compels me to repent thoroughly before him and receive his gift. So maybe God's saying to you or to me, come home. Come home from Babylon. Come home from participating in building the kingdom of this world, which is really the kingdom of Satan, and come and build the kingdom of God. Maximize what you have for my glory and for my purposes. Which brings us then to the older brother. You know, in the story, when the older brother sees that the younger brothers come home and that the father is giving him a party, it makes the older brother really angry. He says, how can you do that? That foolish son of yours who went out and 
hung out with prostitutes and lived the worst kind of life possible, and you give him a party. You've never given me a party. His father says, what do you mean? You've always been with me. You've always had my benefits. How can you say that to me? And Jesus never answers the story. We're never, we're never told if the older brother gets it resolved or not. But he's pretty bitter when the story ends. You know, that's, that's a, a, a picture of a third way of trying to make a name for ourselves. See, there's two audiences. When you read Luke chapter 15, you read the whole context. One is the audience of sinful human beings who know they're sinful, who have been marked by the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, and considered unclean and unworthy. Jesus is telling them, you're the prodigals, and I want you to know that I love you. I've come for you. Not the healthy. They don't need a doctor. I've come for the sick. I've come for the sinner. And they know that, and they rejoice in the story. It was a hooray story for them. But the religious leaders, the Pharisees of the day, when they hear that story, they are the ones being identified with the older brother. You see, they have made a name for themselves by their religion. They've made a name by themselves for themselves by what they're against. They've made a name for themselves by their own self-righteousness. And that, my friends, is the third way that we are tempted sometimes to make a name for ourselves, isn't it? By what we're against or what we're for or by our religiosity, or by our church, or our denomination, or by what we don't do. Even as evangelicals, suppose, you know, if you use that term, which I'm hesitant to use these days just because it's been so tainted by politics, but you know, even as evangelicals, it can be all about you know, the name of my ministry, the size of my church, what I'm against, what I stand for, And God says, I don't need you to make a name for me. I don't need you to make a name for yourself. I've made my name. I am, he said. That's my name. I am, and I need you, and I want you to obey me and worship me and take what I've given to you and use it to build my kingdom, not your own. Don't commit adultery. Don't prostitute your gifts and talents to the world. Don't drink the wine. Don't get intoxicated with the spirit of Babylon. Honor me instead. That's what God is saying to us. Honor me instead. How about it? How about it? Pastor, I'm struggling a little bit with that because on the one hand, I don't want to be like the prodigal son and I certainly don't want to be like the religious guy and I, I don't want to make materialism my whole life. But how do I live in this world then? How do I live? Because honestly, the, you know, the New Jerusalem's not here yet. I live in Babylon how do I do it? And fortunately, there's a, there's a great model and a great answer for us because as my mentor, Had Robinson, said to me, when you look at that story, Dale, there's a third brother involved and the third brother is Jesus himself. Jesus is the one who goes and finds the prodigal and brings him back home again. Jesus said, I've not come to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. And that's the model we're supposed to follow. We're supposed to live in Babylon, but not be of Babylon. We're supposed to live in Babylon and we're supposed to be living as though we are in heaven. Doesn't the Bible say we are seated with Christ in heavenly places? I'm to be living like I'm already there. I'm to be living as though the New Jerusalem were already a reality. Not just me, but we as a community. So that the world looks at us and goes, you guys have something we don't have. That's way better than Babylon. 
the community, the love, the forgiveness, the grace, and that judgmentalism, your patience with each other. Hey, could I be part of that family? Could I be part of that community? And we're like, man, you're welcome to. This is just a taste of what's to come. Instead of reflecting back to the world, the spirit of Babylon, instead of reflecting back to the world, you know, what, what's wrong with the world? And that's, that's the impact we're able to have. If we'll make up our mind, this is the city of my residence. So I'll ask you one more time. Which city are you a resident of? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before you. It's a penetrating question for me as well. It's so easy, Father, to get caught up in the spirit of Babylon, to get caught up in the ways of men, because it's all we see, it's all we know. And yet by faith, Father, like Abraham, you call us to just camp in this world temporarily while we wait for the world to come, while we wait for the new Jerusalem. Sometimes, Lord, I admit I'm impatient. I want it to come right now by reminding your word that you are willing that none should perish but all should come to repentance I'm to live for you in this world and Lord it's a real test of my faith do I really believe in the life to come Father I thank you that you make all things new for us I thank you Father that you bring us hope for the future the presence of your son in our lives through the work of your Holy Spirit Lord, some of us may need to come home. Pray that we'll come home and realize we're coming to loving, forgiving, and gracious arms. Some of us, Lord, may need to redirect our energy and our successes and our resources to help build your kingdom rather than our own or the kingdom of this world. Help us, Lord, please, to do that well and wisely. But I thank you, Father, most of all, that you are a God who does a new work we don't have to wait for the new Jerusalem. Your word says, old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new in our hearts and in our lives. And for that, we give you thanks this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.